It's good to be together. Um, I want to take just a brief moment on the front end, a kind of a uh, moment of personal privilege, just to say thank you. Um, some of you have received thank you cards from us, and uh, if you haven't, you will. <laughs> um, many of you know that in uh, in November, end of November, right before uh, Thanksgiving, my sister my sister died. Uh, Suddenly and tragically, um, I was reflecting over there. It kind of hit me that this is the first time I've preached uh, since then. And uh, kind of overwhelming uh, to sing of resurrection from the grave. Um, but I, uh, I say thank you because you've been so generous and so kind to, to me and my family. A um, number of meals and gifts and uh, cards and flowers. Uh, it's been really, uh, really kind, and, and we, th- we thank you. I thank you. My family thanks you um, tremendously. Thanks to the elders who said, hey, why don't you take, take December off from preaching and, and take some space, and so that's been a real helpful thing um, to do. Thankful to, to be back at it this week, to, to be back and in, in studying the Scripture. Certainly uh, not needed in some ways. Ryan does a great job, and so thankful to him. He's not here but thankful for Ryan and Leanne and the way they've carried, and certainly the elders, Fraser preaching, uh, other guys, Lee and Dwayne and others, uh, Michael carrying the weight of things. So I thank you all uh, for that. Um, it's been a difficult six weeks, as you might imagine. And uh, if you've, those who have gone through the cycles of grief, uh, uh, it's on the front end. So uh, it'll be a journey. Uh, it'll be a process. Um, but I'm thankful to be able to do it with you, and thankful for your kindness and your generosity to us. So, thank you for that. Um, I, uh, Ryan's certainly more than capable um, uh, of doing a good job, and he has, and he's continued on uh, in the parables where we are. Uh, and I'm going to pick up one of the things that we've said as we've studied the parables in Luke is that. By, 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 by saying we're talking about parables, we've already known something about God. By God telling us a story, he's already shown his love and affection to us. He's uh, accommodated himself. He's stooped to us. He's uh, come to us as children and got on our level and taken common things in the culture, things we know about like farming and commerce and things. He's taken those and he's come to us and he's, he's identified and told us a story. It's God's way of loving and caring for us. It's not just proposition. It's not just a mind game. We have to figure it out. Though some parables are harder than others, as we'll see today. This is a tough one. Um, But God has come to us in stories that we would know something of him. So even as we read it, even as we go week by week and we, we think, what's this kingdom like? What's the new values like? God's trying to get it into our hearts by telling us a story, a parable. We said the first week, um, we can't hear things directly, and so it's like a house where you, you go around and you might find the back window open, and you can lift it and crawl through. That's what the parables do. We're close to hearing hard things, and so God finds an alternative route, one that we might be open to hear, one that might catch us off guard so that the beautiful truths of who God is and what his kingdom's like might penetrate our hearts. So I hope, even as we read this, that there's a great comfort to know God loves you so much that he tells us stories. He shows us his love in doing so. 
Would you please stand for the reading of our text? This is Luke 16. We're going to read 1 to 9. This is God's word. Jesus also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a, a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the management away from me. I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. And he said to another, How much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Um, So I was back at preaching this week, and Monday read the passage. I said, it's a tough one, and uh, and then I uh, picked up uh, one of the co- the first commentary. I found the text, and the chapter title was the hardest parable. It's like good we, good to be back, you know. Uh, can we not do the prodigal son? Can we not do uh, the good Samaritan? And so I read it and read it and read it, and then read as uh, happens with preachers, read commentaries and. Uh, uh, unfortunately, none of them agreed on the meaning of the text, and so we wrestled more and more. Hopefully, there's something here for us. God always finds something for us. I think um, I think we'll find some good things here. But first, let's just explain it a little bit. Um, verse 1 says Jesus is talking to the disciples. He's talking to them. Often it's to the crowds in general, but here to the disciples. But we know there's more because verse 14, which is a part of the the, the commentary afterwards, it says this, The Pharisees, that's the religious leaders, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. So he's talking to the disciples, but the, the Pharisees uh, are close by and they're hearing these things. So that's the audience. That'll help us as we seek to interpret it. In the parable, there's a rich man, and based on the amount of money, there's some olive, uh, uh, olive oil. He says... Uh, a hundred measures. Some said that's up to three years' wages. So this is a lot. This is like huge orchards, fields, uh, wheat, uh, huge fields of wheat. This is a very, very wealthy man. And as might be the case, he had someone that would be a manager or a steward, your text might say. And this person is to manage or have responsibility over the rich man, the owner's property and his accounts and his business dealings. Like... Um, when my mom uh, was ill, I, I became her power of attorney, and, and so I would make decisions for her, and I had the rights to go deal with her bank account and deal with her house and deal with the various parts and things I needed to. I could speak on her behalf in a similar way in this account, in this, in this, uh, this story. Uh, the manager had the right 
to act and speak for the owner. The owner has let the manager deal with all of the affairs. And then, the, the, so the, 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 there's a rich man and he has a manager, but charges come to the, to the rich man, the owner, and says, uh, the account's not being managed well. And so the, the owner the, comes to the manager and he says, in verse 2, turn in the account of your management for you can no longer manage. You haven't done a good job. You've been a poor steward of the resources. And so basically, you're, you're being fired Verse 3, we see the crisis. The, the manager says to himself, well, what am I going to do? Since my master has taken away the management from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. So if he loses the job, which he is, he's got a problem because someone that's wealthy like this is probably well-respected. So if he's fired by him, he has lost everything. He's lost his income. He's lost his employment opportunities. He's not strong enough to dig, he says, and he's not going to beg. His life is in ruins. He is in shambles. So he is uh, in a crisis. This is a crisis here. He says, what shall I do? Quickly comes up with a plan, verses 4 to 7. He says this, I've decided what I'll do so that when I'm removed from management... People may receive me into their houses. I'm going to do something so that, but now that I'm fired, I'll be indebted to others. They will, uh, others will be indebted to me. They will have to help me. They will have to show me hospitality because I'll do something for them. So summoning his master's account one by one, and remember, he had the right to do this. He acted for his master. One by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of oil. He said, okay, let's cut that in half from a hundred to fifty. It's a huge amount of money. I think a year and a half of wages. He just reduced it, the debt. The second person, he said, take your bill. And, and quickly, he says, how much do I owe? He says, a uh, hundred. He says, we'll cut it to 80 measures. And so how do you think the debtors feel? They're thrilled, right? I mean, huge sums of money. They've just been reduced. So now they are indebted to the manager has reduced this amount, who had the right to do this, so that when he is fired, he will have options, a place to go. He has ensured it, ensured their favor. Then comes the most striking part of the story, verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. The master comes to the manager who has just, by all accounts, robbed him of large sums of money, and he commends him. He compliments him. It should bring questions when you read it. Like, what? This dishonest scoundrel has done this and now is being affirmed by his master. What in the world is Jesus saying? And there are a lot of interpretations. There are a lot of questions. There are a lot of answers sought to give. What kind of ethic is this? Uh, one Roman emperor, Julian, he came after Constantine in the fourth century. Uh, he was known as Julian the Apostate. Just so you know, uh, you know, if you want a tagline or descriptor, you don't want the apostate. You know, Alexander the Great, Frederick the Wise. You don't want 
the apostate. That's not a good one. So Julian has turned from the faith, but one of the reasons he turns from the faith was this parable. He spoke of the inferiority of Christianity because in what story is a scoundrel like this commended, right? What kind of ethic is Jesus talking about here? This comes from the lips of our Savior Jesus. He's saying that. This can't be right. But Julian says Christianity's got a problem. This is the problem. So what is going on? A lot of options. I think the best answer is the most straightforward answer. Jesus is not commending his dishonesty. Jesus calls him dishonest. Jesus names that. So he's not affirming the shady, manipulative dealings of the manager. Okay? He's not affirming it. He is commending his shrewdness. He's commending his cleverness. The rich man is trapped. The guy had a crisis, had a problem. He came up with a solution where everybody wins. The rich man, in some ways, is forced to commend him. He looks great in society. The people that are indebted to him are thrilled. And he's, the, the manager speaks for the owner, for the master. They're so thankful. Socially, he looks amazing. Right? The, 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 debtors are ha- the, the debtors are happy. Uh, the wealthy owner may not be happy, but he certainly looks good. And the manager is happy. He has a plan for his future. He has people that will show hospitality to him. The manager is sharp. He is clever. He has secured his future. He has used the resource he had, his intellect, his thought, his books, his management, management skills, even though he had been a poor manager, he used what he had to work at a situation where he is in good standing. So, what does the parable have to do with us? <laughs> the disciples, the Pharisees, us as followers of Jesus. A couple things we need to see, and it comes from verses 8 and 9. Verse 8 and 9 is the commentary of Jesus about the story he just told. Verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. We've read that. Then it says this, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. The sons of this world are more shrewd than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Yes, that is as complicated as it sounds. First thing we need to know is there's two types of people here, right? There's sons of this world, children of this world, and then there's children of light. There's this age, this generation, and then there is the age to come, the eternal dwelling. Jesus is laying forth two worlds, two kingdoms, if you will, two spheres, and he's going to make an analogy from one to reference in, an, in this world the other. He's going to make a connection from one to another. From two worlds, two types of people, this is the framework. Let's look at verse 8 and then verse 9 as we try to apply this to us. Jesus says in verse 8, For the sons of this world are, not, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of life. We need to be careful not to overthink a parable. We've said along the way, most parables have one main meaning. There's one meaning. 
We get in trouble and we try to allegorize everything. We try to figure out what every single part's about. This person means this. This person's the father. This person's the son. This person's the Pharisees. This person's this. We try to do that and we kind of miss the point. A lot of commentaries do that. I think we're misguided to get in that in the weeds. There's one main point. Instead, it works by analogy. And by analogy, it works by how much more. Think about how much more. Give you an example. Matthew 7, Jesus says to a father, If one of you, if his son asks for bread, will you give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will you give him a serpent? If you then who are evil, that's us earthly fathers, know how to give good gifts to your children, what? How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? The same applies here. If the dishonest steward, the son of this world, this sphere, this kingdom, if he knows how to deal shrewdly and cleverly in this generation, this world, then how much more should the sons of light, the believers, know how to live with shrewdness in the world to come, in the world of the kingdom? Do you see that? So something of this world and this kingdom, if they know how to do it, if they know how to be clever, if they know how to work it out, we're okay. If they know how to do it, how much more should we in this life know how to operate in the kingdom of God. In some sense, it's instruction to disciples. It's a crisis parable. You know the parable of the, the friend that comes at midnight, right? There's a crisis and they go knocking on the door. The man, the steward, is in crisis. What's going to happen? What am I going to do? There's an urgency. And so he uses his cleverness to think up a plan. How much more should we as children of light in this sphere, the kingdom of God, that's been broken into this world by Jesus, how much more should we live with cleverness and intentionality and urgency in the sphere of the kingdom of God? We are, uh, the kingdom has broken in. Jesus has brought the heavens to earth This overlap of the time between the world and the kingdom to come, he's brought it, and he's saying, I know how the world operates. I know how its systems operate. How much more, children of light, will you operate in the kingdom I've come? Will you live the values and the principles of what I have brought? So it's instruction for us disciples. In another sense, it's rebuke to the Pharisees. What do the Pharisees do? They're the religious people. They're listening, remember? What do they do? They claim to be people of God, but what? They live in the system of the world. Verse 14 says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money. The people that say they're a part of this world, the new kingdom, the new world, the people of God, they live with their life and their heart and decisions and the values in the other kingdom. And he says, no. It's in rebuke. It's, instru- it's a rebuke, correction, as they're ridiculed for valuing. The Pharisees value performance. They value pretense. They put on airs. They, they, they clean up the outside, but their heart is far from the Lord. They're living in this world, claiming that world. They love judgment, but not mercy. 
And he says, the world knows how to do the world, but we're the people of God. How much more should we embody the values and the principles of the kingdom of light? What he says. We're to learn. How does that apply to us? How do we live the principles and the kingdom of this light? Are we shrewd? Jesus says in Matthew 10, when the disciples are facing persecution, he says what? Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Innocent, don't, don't, don't get trapped in the system of the world. Don't live the way the world does, but use the shrewdness, the skills to live the new kingdom values and principles. Jesus does not commend dishonesty. He doesn't, he doesn't commend manipulation or deceit. He's using, by analogy, this story of this dishonest manager to teach us how to live with urgency and skill and intentionality, not passive, not apathetic, not, eh, going through the life, but with urgency. What are we going to do? What shall we do? We have a problem. We have a crisis. And Jesus says, the new world is broken in. The new kingdom's bearing on us. How much more should we live? Commentators say this: there's an eschatological crisis. What does that mean? The new world, the, the, the new age to come is breaking into this world. And we as believers should see it's a crisis. History's not circular. It's linear. We're moving somewhere to the end when Christ returns with his people. There should be an urgency. There should be an awareness. And a, uh, we should be awake and alive to the kingdom of God to live and impart and embody the values of God and his kingdom now. The world's going to do the world, right? But we have a new king. We have a new kingdom. We talked about it in all these parables. It's a new way of living. We've called it upside down. It, it doesn't embody the values we think. We are, are partakers. We are stewards of those values called to live them out finish on this point with this quote commentator says the accusation is still painfully true that the people of this age are wiser in their arena than the children of light are in theirs is it because with one eye on this age and one eye on the kingdom a necessary split vision we allow ourselves to be determined more by our age than by Christ's kingdom Christians are dominated by the same concerns as the rest of society, but Jesus' teaching is intended to give us a different set of concerns. Do you see that? Like the, the manager's gonna worry about the management. We're worried about the kingdom. What concerns you? Where's your priority? Where's your heart? What's your values? What do you give yourself to? What consumes your mind? What keeps you up at night? Is it the values and the principles of the kingdom? Or is it the worries and the cares of this world? So, let's look at verse 9. It's challenging as well. He says, uh, Jesus says, I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that if it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwelling. Before we get into it, I see again there is a distinction between one world and another world. All commentators do agree this term unrighteous wealth is, is the word mammon. It's, it's using money. 
to represent this age. So not unrighteous in that money's bad. It's that money is a part of this age. It belongs to this world. It's the currency of this age. It does tend to corrupt. It is said to be the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. But unrighteous wealth is speaking of this world, not the eternal dwelling. We see that in verse 11, which is not in our text. It says this, If you then have been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, so we're called to be faithful in unrighteous wealth, we're called to be faithful in this world, if you're not faithful there, who will entrust you the true riches of the kingdom? Do you see the dichotomy? He's saying unrighteous wealth is the world, and then the eternal dwellings and the riches is the kingdom. Again, he's using it as a metaphor for the world and for the kingdom. What is he saying? <laughs> is he saying, uh, use your money to buy friends so if your world, if things go south, uh, you're taken care of. Is that what he's saying? Kind of sounds like it, doesn't it? It's two worlds at play. Buy your friends so you will receive some sort of eternal reward. He says eternal dwellings. Got to do a little bit of context. The, the phrase, make friends for yourself, is a, the phrase is a social convention. Borrowed from the Greco-Roman world. We know Luke's writing a larger to a Gentile audience. And it's a word used, in, and they would enter into contract or relationships, and money would be a part of it. And often it would be from a greater party, more, more money, lesser party, and they would uh, use some type of barter or money to be friends. They would make themselves friends. Friends was used to sort of save face or embarrassment for the lesser party. They were agreements. They were bonds made with unrighteous wealth, money, to bind them together. And L Luke is using their terminology. We know Jesus is not saying, buy your friends. <laughs> He's already told a parable a few weeks ago. We talked about the wedding, I mean, the banquet, right? Who did he say to invite? Right, invite the least, invite the outcast, invite those who what? Cannot repay you. So it's not reciprocal. It's not, I buy friends so that I get something back. We know Jesus is not teaching that. He's already told that parable. He's also said this in Luke 6. Listen to these words. If you love those who love you, what benefit is it to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? And if you do good to those who do good, I just said that, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And here it is. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? So you don't give to get. Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same, but love your enemies and do good and lend, here it is, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Jesus is not commending dishonesty or manipulation or you scratch my back, I scratch yours type of relationships with the people of God. Um, I think what he's saying is that use, uh, use the wealth, use the resources you have to make eternal bonds, to make an eternal investment. Use the unrighteous man of things of this world, resources to bless those in this world that there will be an eternal connection. You bless them with what you have, they will welcome you in the eternal dwellings. There is an eternal 
connection. One commentator says this, Jesus says to make friends with mammon, to be sure, and, that, and this might take the form of giving to those in need, a more specific form of canceling debt. The specific application isn't designated. In other words, for us, we can think about this as individuals in a church, use the what you have, use the resources, the gifts, the money you have in this life, in this age, in this sphere, that it might have impact in the age to come. That there might be those, because of your giving, because of your generosity, because of your kindness, that are bound with you eternally in the age to come. When this world fails, it says, it's not talking about the money, it's talking about the world ends. When this age ends, they will be there to receive you because of your blessing and your giving to them. We are to use the currency of this age to bless. Some will say, well, that sounds like it's, uh, you know, works righteousness of some sort, right? I'm going to buy my way to heaven. You know, I'm going to give my money away, do good things, and therefore God's going to reward me. I don't think that's the case, but the truth of it is when we follow Christ, we live the value of the kingdom, we live generously. We don't do it to earn it. We do it because we follow the king, and the king says the values of my kingdom are generosity and help to those that can't repay, to those that are least likely, to those that are unlike you, We give and we bless and there will be an eternal relationship and fellowship and bond who follow the king. One author says, churches and individuals rarely discuss or hold the community accountable for responsible, kingdom-driven decisions regarding possessions. We don't talk about it. Such discussions will lead to the reduction of hoarding And consumerism, it would change how we view and attain investments. It would enable various ministries, and it would, listen, relieve the plight of the poor. So in other words, this whole idea of making friends is about being generous and giving to those who are in need. Are we doing that? Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to hold ourselves accountable for that, to do that? Using our money to bless those, uh, the poor, those in need, is not optional. It's not a side thing. It's a necessary part of what it means to value, uh, to be a part of the kingdom of God. You know, this is a church, we're, we're, we're growing, we're in year three and, and coming on year four, and we're seeking what does it mean to be generous? How do we do mercy? And we've done mercy and in light of uh, missions together, but this year we've created a, a mercy fund as we seek to be more merciful in this very area and use money as well. But I'll say to you, we need your help and we need your creativity. We need your shrewdness and your, your cleverness and your wisdom to help us. Our deacons are working on it. Others are working on it. But we want to be a church that's generous to those in need. Many of us, most of us in here, aren't, uh, aren't poor in terms of financial, probably the opposite in many cases. But if we turn a blind eye, if we do this to the world around us, we've missed a big part of the very heart of God. So we have to, he said in the quote, we have to do that and we as the people have to hold each other accountable to do that. It's collective, but it's also individual. How do you use your resources? 
How do you use your money? We'll talk about that too much. We probably should talk about it more. Do you embody the values of this world that you take the money and the things you get for you? It's all you, it's wrapped up in you. Or do we take the money and the resources of this world, the the unrighteous wealth, the mammon, we take it and we say, let's throw it forward. Let's invest in the kingdom. Let's give ourselves and generosity for eternal good. As we finish up, the church has always, right? How many hospitals are named after a denomination or? The church at its best has always cared for the poor, has cared for the least. We've always made friends in this sphere for the next sphere. We right, built hospitals and orphanages and schools and cared for the uh, addicted and we've cared for battered women and we've, we've created uh, victory health, right? We've given for uninsured people. The church has given money, food pantries, Shelters for battered women, homeless shelters. We've planted churches. We've sent missionaries. We've done all that we can in this world. We've taken it. We've come together. We've used our creativity and our resources. And we said, let's put it together and let's invest in the next life. To the degree we're not doing that, we're living in this world alone and we're forsaking the investment in the world to come. And he says, Jesus says, look, the manager's dishonest, but he's making the most of what he has. I think that's the point. Are we making the most of what we have? Are we using it in a way that will bless for the age to come? That we will have eternal brothers and sisters because of how we used our wealth. Um, we'll finish. Um, Life in the kingdom, uh, shrewd and, cl- and wise and generous. Um, it's really the gospel, isn't it? The gospel message. I mean, um, how is a just and holy God going to reconcile with sinful man, <laughs> right? How is holy, just God going to be gracious and loving and merciful to sinners? We wouldn't have come up with the plan. We, we aren't smart enough, right? We aren't shrewd enough. And God, the God-man, Jesus, comes from the other world, the age to come, the kingdom of God. He comes to this life, the God-man. He's both. He bridges the gap between this world, and he takes all of the resources of this life, his body, his very self, and he gives it away, right? He lays it down. He gives it to the cross. He dies. He gives himself up. He is torn in two that there might be eternal dwellings for brothers and sisters in Christ like us. God is uh, far wiser and shrewder than we could ever be. Will we display something of the generosity of God as we relate to this world? Will we display the urgency as we live our lives for the age to come with all that we have, whether we have a little, a few verses later, given much, right? Use what you have. <laughs> to those that have been given a lot, use what you have to bless. That in some way we might embody the very gospel, the very God himself as we love.
Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. It's uh, complicated and simple at the same time. You want us to know. You want us to know your heart. You want us to know what it's like to live in your world and your kingdom and for your glory. I pray that we'd be people that don't just talk about it. It sounds good in a sermon. Uh, Let's be generous, but we would be generous when it comes to Monday morning, when it comes to how we use our money, when it comes to how as a church we come up with our budget and how we spend it and who we invest in. That we would spend money uh, for self-care so that we would give our lives away in radical ways. That we would be intentional with rest, that we would be rigorous in laboring and serving and generosity to others. God, make us that kind of church. May we embody those values. May it be so, we ask in your name.